You know what's a really scary topic? Economics. Economics is one of these fields of study where you can have a really good idea. And it works wonders in one place and then it destroys another. Right? You can have a certain policy and maybe it works really well in the US. You pass the same exact law in Canada. It might cripple and decimate the economy. It might ruin everything. And there is no real rhyme or reason. It's, you know, it's very complex voodoo magic in many ways. And the system that we're living under right now, right, capitalism is very young. This is a system that has existed for less than 300 years. I mean, think about how young that is, right? That is not very long. And understandably, it has some problems. Now, one of the most prominent thinkers to point those problems out have been Karl Marx. So in this episode, we are going to be exploring the Communist Manifesto, Karl Marx's most notorious, infamous, and sometimes beloved piece of writing ever. It is probably the most influential piece of writing in economic left-wing history, right? It's even widely read today. So it's really important to understand it, whether you lean left, you lean right, or something else, right? Whatever your position is, it's important to understand what Karl Marx says because he's had a lot of influence. There are people today that call themselves Marxists. Why do they think this way? Why do they believe this, right? We're going to get to the bottom of all of it in this episode. Hello there, friend. Welcome back to History for Thinkers Notes, a show where we take notes on interesting books, ideas, and history generally. Make sure to follow the show for more episodes just like this one, and without further ado, let's get into the episode. Uh, let's understand some context about the Communist Manifesto, because that's, you know, that's the key to understanding what it is Marx is saying here. So, this was published as a pamphlet in 1848, came during a rise of revolutionary sentiment, so people were pissed off and angry and they were getting abused for a very long time by this point, right? Industrial capitalism came around in, right, I think we said the 1700s, late 1700s, and it was just not perfect at the start, right? And, you know, every iteration of things are bad, but dang, cap going through industrialization, man, it was kind of rough, right? You had child labor and, you know, 16-hour work days, and it was just miserable stuff. So people were understandably pretty pissed off. Now, the manifesto itself was written by Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels. People kind of forget about Engels because, you know, according to him, he was the second fiddle to Karl Marx. He was kind of a number two, despite financially supporting Marx, right? He was more or less Marx's sugar daddy, right? They, I, as far as I know, they were not uh, homosexual or anything, but uh, Engels had inherited a whole bunch of money, uh, businesses, right? He had, you know, factories in the UK, in Germany, right? He was a pretty wealthy, well-to-do guy. And he kind of supported Marx and said, you know what, we're going to try to, uh, you know, start this revolution, right? I'm on board, right? Even though I'm a business owner and I have stuff to lose, I'm on board with this stuff. So that kind of gives you some insight onto Engels. But he did financially support Marx. Now, these guys were not just thinkers, right? And this is something 
that I do kind of like and admire about them. They are not writing or thinking just, you know, for their own sake, right? They want to change the world. And there's just something about wanting to change the world, right, with real actions in the real world that have real consequences. There's something about that that is very appealing, right? Even if it's not a good outcome, right? Because at the very least, we can learn from it. Now, the Communist Manifesto is divided into four sections, and we're going to kind of tackle the content uh, in a similar way. Although, some sections have more meat than others. So let's start with section number one, entitled Bourgeois and Proletarians. So Marx writes, quote, The history of all hitherto existing society is the history of class struggles. This is a very prominent idea in left-wing thought. The idea that there is inherent conflicts between different classes of people in society. Now, Marx categorizes this more or less as the oppressor and the oppressed, although there's a little bit more nuance there. In our modern world, it comes down to owner versus worker, right? So the capitalist, right, someone that's the business owner, they own the factory, they earn money through ownership of a business or, you know, means of production, right? This can also be a landlord, right? Someone that owns a house and they rent it out to you so you can live there, right? These people, the capitalists, the owner class, or the bourgeoisie, as Marx calls them, they essentially get to get paid, right? They make all this money for not really doing anything. Their inputs are like basically zero and they get pretty much all the money and wealth in society, which they can then use to increase their money and wealth, right? And then you compare that with the proletariat, right? The, the wage worker. So this is someone who earns money through working at the means of production. So they go to the factory, they are working 16 hours a day, they don't get paid enough to really start their own business or anything. Hell, they barely get enough uh, money to live, right? Can't even feed their kids, especially during this period of time. So there is a lot of conflict there. To understand why these two classes of people are in perpetual conflict, let's make it modern, right? Let's talk about a local McDonald's, right? It's a pretty popular business. So if you are a capitalist, you own that McDonald's, right? It is your, your the means of production. Now, the really good thing about it is you don't have to show up. You don't really have to do anything, right? You can pretty much get the entire McDonald's running on autopilot and you make money just by existing, right? More or less. Now, there's really only one way that you can increase your profit, right? You can pay your people less. That is, you know, one of your biggest expenses, right? That's why today a lot of different businesses from McDonald's to Walmart and everything else they are trying to use technology more and more. It is simply cheaper and more efficient and easier if you can use robots to do pretty much all the work, right? Now, this goes in direct contrast to what the proletariat wants. They want to work, but not too much. They want to get paid a fair wage. They want to have free time, a family, and, you know, maybe be able to afford a house, you know, advance their own life, maybe save up and start their own business one day. But in order for them to be able to afford all that stuff, it goes in, you know, it goes against the capitalist profit, right? So that 
owner of McDonald's does not want their workers to be making too much money that they can go start their own business, right? It might be competition or, you know, heck, it's just one less worker, right? And that means all the other workers that stay, you know, they have a little bit more bargaining power and, right, you guys can kind of naturally see there is conflict between these two classes of people. And we'll explore a little bit more later on. But this class conflict, right, inherently goes beyond capitalism. So Marx believed class conflict is inherent to human nature. It's pretty much always been there throughout history any way you spin it. There's always someone that is some kind of owner and someone that is some kind of worker. There is someone that is the oppressor and someone that is oppressed. That is what Marx believes to be, you know, pretty much core to human history. And it's, you know, you can kind of compare it to feudalism, right? Now, there are some differences between capitalism and feudalism, but Marx sees the big similarity, right? There's the owner class, right? Whether that's the owner of McDonald's or a lord, right? Pretty much the same thing. They own the property, they own the land, they own the means of production. And then there is the worker or the serf or the peasant, right? Whatever it is. You know, you can change the names of the classes, but the classes still fundamentally exist. And he actually says that feudalism had more classes, right? So there was a little bit more gradation there where you can, you know, you can be like, you know, uh, a small, lower nobility, right? Like that was kind of a thing. Whereas today, there's just increasingly two classes. There are business owners and there are people who work the businesses, so he talks a lot about feudalism, actually, he, you know, because especially you got to think during this time, it was still in recent memory. It's kind of ancient to us today, but you got to think they're operating with just having gotten away from feudalism. So Marx argued that the bourgeoisie led revolutions against, quote, feudal patriarchal idyllic relations. So. The bourgeoisie, right, the modern-day business owners, are the ones that pretty much did away with this system, right? And what this did was it removed a sense of purpose from all relations, right? No longer are you, you know, related to people in some kind of, you know, obligatory way, right? It is just all economic self-interest, right? There's no more honor, no more sentimentality, no more religious fervor, right? There's no more chivalry. It's just economic self-interest. And that is kind of the cynical observation that Marx makes of modern capitalism. One of the many ways that it has been bad for humankind. So he argues that it has degraded all work into mere wages. It has turned everything into a commodity. Whether you are a well-respected doctor or you're a typical wage worker in some factory somewhere. Doesn't matter what you are, you know, we've all been degraded to more or less being machines. It's more or less what we have become. So now we can move on to one of Marx's best criticisms of the capitalist regime. Quote, the executive of the modern state is but a committee for managing the common affairs of the whole bourgeoisie. So what's he saying here? Marx is saying that the government and big business are in bed. They are buddy-buddy. And there's nothing that we can really do about it. Right? You think about big businesses buying politicians. It goes on all the time. 
Right? We all know what's happening. But is there really much that we can even do about it? Not really, no. And he also makes the point that global capitalism expands and eventually envelops the entire earth. So for any country that is isolationist or, you know, they just want to stick to their own ways, it's just inevitable that they will have to join the global economic, you know, system. Right? I think a good example is Eastern Asia during the, uh, you know, industrialization period, right? Especially Japan, right? They had their own closed off society, their own little island. They were off doing their own thing. And that was, that was good for them. But, you know, sooner or later, the, the global capitalist powers more or less forced them to start trading, right? Open your ports for trade. And the free market came to Japan. And that's Marx argues, right? This is just the way it goes. Because it couples very well with this other idea that the economy must grow, right? If the economy doesn't, if there is no new wealth generated, pretty much the system collapses, right? You got to think, what would happen if the GDP in the United States started going down, right? Pretty scary stuff, right? And even, you know, small increases in the GDP and the economy, still pretty scary, right? Just just the small ones, right? Because sometimes it's not enough. We want more. We want more. So ultimately, capitalism has forced every nation on earth into capitalism, right? Everywhere is capitalist, you know, right? Even the countries that claim they are not, right? North Korea, Cuba, they still have some elements of the free market in them. Now, it might be the black market, right? It might be illegal, but capitalism is there. And this is where Marx writes that capitalism, quote, creates a world after its own image. So it influences and changes everything. It's the most powerful system ever. It swallowed the whole earth in just a few hundred years, right? We're all living in a capitalist world, whether you think that's a good or a bad thing. So Karl Marx argues for the communist revolution, and he believes that this is the final class conflict, right? Again, there have been different class conflicts throughout the ages, and it always results in the lower class overthrowing the upper class, right? Sooner or later. But today we have, you know, a simplified two-class divide, right? There are the people that that own, and there are the people that work. And he writes that exploitation was once viewed in ideology, right? It's not anymore. It is no longer viewed in you know, some kind of Christian idealism or chivalry or, you know, even patriotism, right? It's just all ruthless economic self-interest. He also believes that the means of production must continually revolutionize. So, what does that mean, right? Things have to continue to get better, which means more technological advancement, which means more workers get, you know, less uh, less mastery over their domains, right? You got to think even uh, during the 1900s, there were lots of factories that started embracing the assembly line. And the assembly line was, you know, it was good for business owners because it was very good for the way that you can create a car, you can make them much more efficiently, much faster, at a cheaper cost. But 
you remove something from the work itself, right? Because now you're, instead of building, you know, some masterpiece that you work on for a couple weeks, you have an assembly line. And you sit there and you do one very tedious, repetitive, monotonous task all day long. You get paid peanuts compared to the owner. And then you go home. And then you go home and that's it. Marx believes that the communist revolution is inevitable. And it's really been enabled by the bourgeoisie themselves. So he more or less argues that they pay workers as little as possible. Right, while they reap all these massive profits. So you look at, you know, like Standard Oil, right? The people that worked for Standard Oil did not get paid a whole lot of money. But then there was, uh, you know, Rockefeller and he was richer than hell. I mean, you know, Jesus, imagine having so much money, especially during then before inflation, right? Must have been nice. And on top of that, these business owners, they don't work themselves, right? So right now this system has the wage slaves, the workers working all the time, working their asses off in miserable conditions and barely getting anything in return, right? Just enough money to live. Meanwhile, the people that own the businesses get all the surplus value, all of it, right? So Marx writes, quote, what the bourgeoisie therefore produces, above all, are its own grave diggers. Its fall and the victory of the proletariat are equally inevitable. He thinks that sooner or later, people are going to wake up. They're going to smell the coffee. They're going to feel the chains that have shackled them down into wage slavery for the big capitalist business owners. Right? This is what he believes. And you got to think, right? This was before child labor laws workers' rights of any kind, the 40-hour work week, even weekends, right? So just, I just want you to imagine you are a 10-year-old child. You work 16 hours a day, every single day. You are not paid enough to adequately feed yourself, right? Especially because the money probably goes to your parents. And even then, your entire family is working all the time and you just there's no room for growth or or anything, right? And just surviving is, is miserable. And there were a lot of people in a situation like that. Which is why I think, you know, as radical as this manifesto gets, right? Because it does get there. I think it's because people felt so much pain. So much pain. And it just became logical, right? The business owners weren't cracking. The government was only helping the business owners. So we've got to have a communist revolution. So Marx argues that the worker has essentially been reduced to an appendage of the machine, right? Essentially a commodity, right? Something that can be bought and sold and traded, right? As if it were a piece of plastic. Now, the real problem is that survival is dependent on labor creating capital. So if you're a worker, and you are no longer capable of working to produce capital, right? You have no value. You're basically left to rot and die. And on top of that, they are vulnerable to market fluctuations. So all of a sudden there's this big new trend and, you know, all of a sudden the skill that you have specialized in isn't relevant anymore. You are out on your ass. You're homeless. Your kids are hungry. That is the way it 
goes. Marx also compares the worker to something like a slave and a soldier at the same time. You know, a little bit of both. And Marx believes that this current industrial system, right, the capitalism of his time, it was just constant exploitation, right? You go to work, you are exploited by your boss, right? You get paid pennies, they make a whole bunch of money, they get rich, even richer, and then you go home, right? Well, you don't own a home, right? You can't, you don't have enough money to own a home. You're not nobility after all. So you have to rent and then you get robbed by your landlord. Cause guess what? They, you know, they can just charge you rent. And you know, if they say that rent's going to be five times more expensive this month, that's, that's it, right? You don't have any bargaining power. Otherwise you're homeless, right? So Marx observed that the middle class had essentially been destroyed. Right. Now, these were formerly the small tradespeople, not the millionaires, right? Not the really wealthy people, but, you know, people that made an honest living, right? Working for themselves, right? Something like, almost think of them like freelancers or just small business owners today, right? They've essentially been carved out, don't really exist. And it's because, Marx argues, there is a lack of capital in order to, you know, keep their businesses afloat or to, you know, continue to produce more money. So these people that were formerly, you know, a dignified class, they are now reduced to the proletariat. And then on top of that, right, industrialization kind of makes them irrelevant. How many cobblers do you know? Even know what a cobbler is? (laughs) A cobbler is someone that used to work on shoes, right? They, They used to be these really skilled craftsmen. They developed an art and a mastery over the ability to make and fix shoes. Well, the factory came around and we can make sneakers, you know, we can make like a gazillion of them with very little creative input or even work, right? So cobblers kind of went out of business. And even the really skilled, well-respected people in society, you know, during Marx's time and even our own, right, they're pretty much paid peanuts in comparison to what the business owners make, right? You know, you think about how much a doctor makes or, you know, maybe a programmer, right? Someone that is that has mastered a really important and difficult skill. They make peanuts compared to what the, the business owners make. So this is why Marx concludes that the bourgeoisie is unfit to rule. They fail to meet even the most basic needs of of workers, right? You cannot possibly live being a child, you know, working 16 hours a day in the coal mines and you're dying and you're not paid enough to live. Like, it's just terrible, terrible life conditions. And they cannot provide, quote, an existence to its slave within its slavery. So it's bad enough that the working class has been reduced to slavery but they cannot even exist as slaves because the capitalist business owners are trying to take away, I mean, even the most basic stuff. Even the most basic stuff. And this is why Marx believes that proles must destroy all existing society. Right? After all, they have nothing to lose. Right? Nothing to defend. They don't own any homes. They, you know, they just don't own anything. They don't really have much. They, they rent in the, in the cities, they work at these crappy jobs, and that, that, that's their life. That's their life, and there's no reason for them not to destroy everything. 
So that was all section one. Let's get into section number two here, entitled Proletarians and Communists. So he argues that communists should support any working class parties, right? But there is a fundamental distinction between communists and other working class groups, right? The communist wants to advocate for international working people uniting, right? Workers of the world unite, right? Those famous words, it is all workers everywhere. It doesn't matter if you are Chinese or, or German or American or whatever else, right? You, we're all workers. We're all exploited by the same people. So we need to come together and, you know, establish communism, right? He also addresses some criticisms of communism in this section. We're not going to go through all of them, but we will uh, acknowledge his rebuttal to one of the big ones, and that is no one will work, right? This is very common. People say if we implement communism, no one's ever going to do anything, right? Because we're all equal. You get the same no matter what, right? Well, Marx argued that as the system currently stands, workers get nothing. And the people who don't work get everything. Like, you could not create a worse system than what we have now. And then, my friend, do you know what's next? It's the infamous part of this manifesto, the Ten Planks of Communism. So we'll just run through these a little quickly. So there is, number one, the abolition of property and land and application of all rents of land to public purposes. So, you know, basically get rid of private property. Right, when you look at society at that time, right, it was something like nine-tenths of society had no property anyway. Right, There was probably about 10% of the population that, that actually owned anything. Right, So it didn't really matter. And I actually really like the you know, this way that Marx responded to this criticism when he wrote, quote, In one word, you reproach us with intending to do away with your property. Precisely so. That is just what we intend. Right. So listen, man, that's not a criticism. That is our goal. We are trying to take away your property. So plank number two, a heavy progressive or graduated income tax. Right. So the more you make, the more the government's going to take. Number three, abolition of all rights of inheritance. So if you are born the son of a rich person, you don't get some kind of special privileges, you don't get special advantages, right? And ideally, that would mean that everyone has some kind of vested interest in making the country as good as possible, right? Then there's number four, confiscation of the property of all immigrants and rebels. Number five, the centralization of credit in the hands of the state by means of a national bank with state capital and an exclusive monopoly. And this is where we start getting into the really authoritarian ones, right? Because number six here is the centralization of the means of communication and transport in the hands of the state. So you cannot go anywhere or communicate with anyone without the government's approval in some way, shape, or form. Then there's number seven, the extension of factories and instruments of production owned by the state, the bringing into cultivation of wastelands and the improvement of the soil generally in accordance with a common plan. So more or less uh, a planned economy. Number eight, 
equal liability of all to work, establishment of industrial armies, especially for agriculture. So he doesn't want there to be an owner class sitting around collecting money anymore, right? Everyone's got to work. You got to do your part. Number nine, combination of agriculture with manufacturing industries, gradual abolition of all the distinction between town and country by a more equitable distribution of the populace over the country. So he wants to get rid of the regionalism, you know, different populations, right? It's very necessary for communism to see everyone as the same, right? And this is, of course, going to run into some problems because people have different cultures and ethnicities and languages and ideas, and it's just going to get very messy real fast. But again, we'll save some of this for the analysis. Then there is number 10, free education for all children in public schools, abolition of children's factory labor in its present form, combination of education with industrial production. I think this number 10, you're at least a decent one, right? Because more or less we have adopted that in uh, the developed world. And that's pretty much it for uh, section number two. So now we can move to number three, the socialist and communist literature. So he criticizes some of the other forms of socialism, right? Because you got to think there are many different forms of socialism. Communism is actually just a branch of socialism. So socialism, the core idea behind it is that there is social ownership of the means of production. That means that the people that work in the factories or at McDonald's, the people that work it should own it, right? They should be able to profit from their own labor, right? And you compare that with communism that wants the collective ownership of everything, right? All means of production. But in addition to that, it wants it through the state, right? So state socialism, right? And that's kind of the big distinction between communism and socialism, right? Socialism is not inherently through the government, although sometimes it can be. And But when it is, it is called communism. That's the big difference there. So Marx rejects all other forms of socialism as reactionary reformers, right? Basically a bunch of clowns. He... <laughs> He actually walks through and pretty much roasts all other forms of socialism that were at least popular during his time. Now, we are not going to go through every single one of them because I just don't think they're relevant anymore. People don't think this way for the most part, right? Are you a a feudal socialist, right? I've never heard of that, right? That's not a popular idea anymore. It was during Marx's time, which is why he felt it was necessary to address their points and and debunk them. But I don't know any feudal socialists, you know. I'm sure there's going to be someone in the comments section that says they are a feudal socialist, and I really should have included that part. But but, uh, listen, man, if you really want to read it, you can read the manifesto yourself, you feudal socialist fool. But let's address one of the more important uh, groups that he criticizes, what he calls the conservative socialists, because this is more or less the form of socialism that we have seen in the Western world since this time. So this 
essentially boils down to right what we have today in the West, where the working class has been given certain rights and privileges, and it's gotten a little bit better, right? We've got a minimum wage. We've got workers' rights, you know, anti-discrimination stuff, right? Um, there is a weekend. There is welfare, unemployment benefits. These are all things that make the life of the working class better. And Marx had a lot of problems with this, right? Because he noted that it does improve life for the proletariat. It makes life better for the working class, but it maintains capitalism, and that fundamentally is the problem with it. So Marx ultimately believed that the system had to be destroyed and rebuilt. You cannot reform capitalism. It has to be burned to the ground, and you got to start from scratch. That is the only way to do it. And then we, we can move on to section number four, the position of the communists in relation to the various existing opposition parties. So this is actually one of the shorter sections where you know he more or less encourages communists to work with other revolutionary movements, right? You know, whatever kind of revolutionary you are, you know, join us. And this was one of the big reasons that communism led the left during this time and then going into the 1900s because they wanted to work with anyone, right? Get get your goals accomplished, right? And this really started this whole idea of the ends justify the means. All the terrible things that happened under communist regimes were to bring about some kind of worker's paradise, some kind of utopia. A utopia that many have argued cannot exist. And that, right, this ends justify the means thing, that's going to kill a lot of people. Going to kill a lot of people. Probably one of the most destructive ideas present in the Communist Manifesto. And I want to iterate, Karl Marx does not come out and say that the ends justify the means, right? He doesn't say it explicitly, but it is implied. It is very strongly implied. And he ends the entire manifesto with a very strong call to action. Quote, Let the ruling classes tremble at a communistic revolution. The proletarians have nothing to lose but their chains. They have a world to win. Working men of all countries, unite! Right, just very edgy stuff right here. And actually, in modern times, this has actually been changed a little bit. It's workers of the world unite, right? Gotta include women workers in that as well. So now we are going to move into some of my own analysis and my own thoughts. If you only wanted to hear about the Communist Manifesto, like you wanted a good summary, a good explanation, there it is. Now we are kind of departing from that. We're going to analyze some of what's going on here. So one of the criticisms Marx had that really struck a chord was that government serves big business. And as an American man, it just kind of rings true, right? There is a degree of truth in, in this idea. Right. And, you know, there's a modern conception among you know, some of my peers, a lot of people I know, because they think that, you know, the more government influence you have in the economy or anything, really, the more corrupt and the more cronyism that's going to go on. But really, it comes down to the way the government is used. Right. The government passing more laws does not necessarily restrict freedom or or help businesses, or hurt businesses, or corporations, or whatever, right? It is the way 
it is done. You know, you got to think, the government could pass a law tomorrow. And they can say, oh, hey, if you start a small business for yourself, you go into business for you, and you go out there, you're not going to pay any tax for 10 years. They could totally do that. There is nothing stopping them from doing that. But guess what? They don't. They don't do it. So it's not so much that more government is bad, but, you know, again, it's just the way it goes about it. Right? So there, there's just, again, a lot of nuance and a lot of uh, gray area in politics and economics, and especially where politics and economics overlap, right? I think another good example is uh, this news story I saw not too long ago, a couple days ago, where Apple, right, the big company, software, right, iPhone, they more or less strong-armed Georgia politicians to not pass a law that would have been bad for their business, right? So, you know, this goes on, right? This goes on, and, you know, that's an example that I don't even think anyone cares, right? It, it's like a big cor- a big multinational corporation can come in and strong-arm our elected representatives, and people don't even say anything about it. Like, it's just expected. Like, people just, yeah, this goes on. Yeah, so what? What else is new? Like, there's almost an apathy about it, and I think that's probably the saddest part. That, you know, what Marx is criticizing in the 1800s has become a sad reality for people that live under capitalist regimes. Another idea that was kind of uh, tricky was the abolition of private property, right? Because even Marx acknowledged some of the early communes in America, specifically, because that's where people went, right? You, a lot of cheap land there. You had some money in Europe. You know, you got your people together and you went over, bought some land in America, started your commune. A lot of people did that. And almost all of them failed. <laughs> uh, Marx denounced them as utopians, right? which is kind of funny because most, most Marxists today get denounced as utopians. So it's just, it's funny to see how, you know, kind of how it goes. But... I think this gets us at, you know, what do we do about that, right? So I think a good alternative to abolition of private property, which is clearly not ever going to work, but maybe um, putting some kind of limit on private property, right? Like maybe that, it, the idea that you can just own more and more and in theory own everything, maybe there is a more realistic solution to some of the problems. So this is one of the big problems with communism, is that violence as a political means is inherently wrong and counterproductive. Because Karl Marx, he encourages violence, right? When you want a revolution, you want people to die. You are saying that it is okay to slaughter people and murder the czar and kill his children, right? I mean, just all the things that, all the terrible things that happen, right? I don't care how bad the system is, there is just no reason that children ever have to be slaughtered, right? And when you look at the communist revolution in Russia, they went to the czar's house, they killed his kids. They slaughtered children. That is not something that can be justified. That is not a good position to have. Not least because it is counterproductive, 
right? You do all this crazy violent shit, it does more harm than good. You shoot yourself in the foot and stop people from sympathizing. That is the big problem there, right? So not only is it morally wrong to be violent and kill people, right? Which, which should be obvious, but then there's also the idea that you do more harm than good, right? I kind of uh, remember there's this clip that went viral a little while ago, Antifa, right? And, you know, they were getting violent, they're burning stuff down, and they're just, you know, causing chaos. And at one point, you know, this one Antifa guy gets on this camera and he's like, we're coming for the suburbs next, right? More or less threatening the, you know, typical working class Americans out there, right? People that are just not entrenched in this political subculture of of fighting and, and revolting all the time. And that just does more harm than good. If you genuinely believe in, you know, you know, whether it's socialism or capitalism or like whatever your political ideas are, do not enforce violence to get your way because it will do more harm than good. It will hurt you more than it helps you because, you know, normal people see that. And they're like, wow, Antifa, they're a bunch of violent thugs, aren't they? (laughs) Yeah, some of them are, yeah, definitely. And in many ways, when you look at communism, the movement, it is almost directly responsible for fascism. Now, I include almost because I, I don't like to be hyperbolic. I want to be as close to the truth as possible. But I think there is a very good argument to make that fascism and Nazism were simply a reaction to communism. It is a natural reaction, right? We're going to unite against this communistic threat. They're trying to abolish our private property, right? And there are a lot of people that understandably would rather that extreme than the other. There were, there, you know, you just look at a lot of the moderates that lived through Germany, right? When the Nazis and the communists were fighting, The Nazis just looked like a less evil group of people to join. And that, right? I mean, it's the Nazis, right? They killed a lot. They did a lot of harm and a lot of bad to a lot of people. And when you look worse than them, you know, that's not good. That's not good. And I think there's a really good case to say that communism created fascism and Nazism and Right? Like it's just all one big chain reaction that resulted in the deaths of millions. One of the points that really struck a chord with me throughout this entire, you know, all the research and writing I've done for this episode is some of his criticisms of conservative socialism. Because conservative socialism really more is, uh, is what we have today, right? America, right? When people say that welfare or social security is socialism, they are in a sense right. But it is conservative socialism, right? Marx wanted to restructure society completely. He didn't think that there was anything that we could do within the capitalist system to, you know, create dignity for the working class. But there are programs that can provide bargaining power for workers, right? Uh, I think One of the best examples is Milton Friedman's UBI. So Milton Friedman is this very famous American economist, hardcore free market thinker. You know, 
you could probably call him the libertarian, and he made a very solid case for universal basic income. And he argued that it maximized human freedom. It, you know, actually did more harm to government power than it did good, right? It gets rid of a lot of the bureaucracy. Um, he called it a negative income tax. And he, you know, argued that you know, this is just what it should, you know, this is what the free market should do to, you know, make the market more free, right? And I think that's something that could provide a lot of benefits to the working class where life wouldn't be so miserable, right? Because let's acknowledge there is a lot of misery if you are poor in America or, you know, honestly poor anywhere, but even in somewhere like America, the richest country on earth, we have more material wealth than any other civilization in human history. And then we still have all these homeless people, right? There are like a hundred, over 100,000 homeless children in the United States today, right? So I do think that Marx and the left, they do have some very valid criticisms of the United States and capitalism and, you know, this economic system that we all exist under, right? And I just can't help but think that something like UBI or, you know, something like that, right? And Milton Friedman's idea has to be better than unions, right? Because, you know, I'm not going to get too into the union thing because it is a very complex topic, but unions are a response to bad working conditions, right? And the idea is that all the workers come together, they join a union, and then they can bargain with the company that employs them. So let's say there were a union for McDonald's workers, right? They come together and they say, you know what? We're not going to serve your, you know, fast food shit anymore unless you can start paying us $15 an hour. We're, we're not working for minimum wage anymore. Screw you. In theory, it sounds nice. But you know what? I have a family friend, you know, I don't want to get into specifics for you know, legal reasons, but they work at a big company. And the factory workers, you know, they're more or less a manager. So they're not part of the union, but the factory workers are. And the people that work in this factory, sometimes they show up to work drunk. Sometimes they just completely half-assed. You know, they show up late to their shifts and the company cannot do anything to fire them. So there are problems with unions because, you know, they'll protect the lazy do-nothings of the, you know, of the world, right? It's kind of, kind of what they do. And their hope is that they do more good than harm, but in a lot of ways, they do still do harm. Now, the answer is not to gut all the unions because, right, when you gut all the unions, you give all the bargaining power over to the business owners. So, you know, you see, it just becomes a very, very complicated topic very quickly. And, you know, it gets at this idea that you know, we started talking about with, Economics is not a science. You cannot have a right or a wrong answer. It's just very, there's a lot of nuance and different ideas. And some, sometimes the way you apply an idea is more important than the idea itself. But my friends, that is going to be it for the episode. If you guys are still interested in hearing more about Marx and some of his ideas, I actually just recently released an episode of five of Marx's best ideas. So I will leave a link to that in the description and hopefully the pinned comment if I remember. But 
Very interesting stuff. And if you like this, I'm sure you will like that too. But that is going to be it for the episode. Thank you so much for listening all the way through. If you guys want more episodes like this, little tidbits, deep dives on uh, historical books, events, people, you know, just little one-off episodes like this, make sure to follow History for Thinkers Notes wherever you get your podcast feed. Thank you so much, and I will see you in the next one. Peace out.